Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 11th of February with me, Ian Welsh. We've got a bumper episode this week. Coming up are Innovation Forum's Toby Webb and Peter Stanbury talking about Nestle's new plan to tackle child labour and other challenges in its cocoa supply chain. Plus, there are highlights of a conversation I had recently with Ian Suranganda from Golden Agri Resources and Rasheen Mortimer from the Tropical Forest Alliance. We talked about some of the regulatory changes coming up that will impact palm oil and other commodity supply chains, in particular the shift to due diligence on transparency on product origin. And a few days ago, I spoke with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop about the Future of Food at USA conference that's coming up in mid-June. First, though, is some sustainable business news. The US Department of Agriculture has announced details of a new $1 billion partnership for Climate Smart Commodities Initiative. This will finance partnerships to support the production and marketing of climate smart commodities via pilot projects that will last from one to five years. These pilots will, the USDA says, provide technical and financial assistance to producers implementing low-impact practices, pilot innovative and cost-effective methods for quantifying, monitoring, reporting and verifying of emission reductions, and market the resulting carbon smart commodities. The USDA wants to include as wide a range of the agriculture and forestry sectors in the US as possible, as part of a commitment to supporting climate solutions that increase resilience, expand market opportunities and strengthen rural economies. The sort of projects that will be part of these pilots include cover crops, no-tilling, nutrient management, agroforestry, planting for high carbon sequestration and smart pasture practices. Data from Brazil's National Space Institute has shown a concerning spike in deforestation in January, setting a new record for the month in only three weeks. From the 1st to the 21st of January, almost 360 square kilometres were destroyed in the Brazilian Amazon, already the worst since 2015, when the Institute's satellite monitoring programme was established. Forest watchers have pointed out that this is particularly concerning, as January is typically the month with peak rainfall, when deforestation rates fall. The comparable number for 2021 was 84 square kilometres deforested, around 23% of this year's total. Destruction of the Amazon has surged since the election in 2019 of President Jair Bolsonaro, who has openly encouraged the opening up of protected rainforest lands to mining and industrial-scale farming. The seemingly endless queue of big companies lining up to pledge to get to net zero emissions by mid-century has certainly been a key feature of the past couple of years. However, a new report from the New Climate Institute and Carbon Market Watch says that so far the progress made would suggest that targets will be missed with actual emission cuts likely to be closer to 40% rather than 100% by 2050. The Corporate Climate Responsibility Monitor points to the likes of Amazon, IKEA and Unilever as not showing sufficient substance to back up their ambitious net zero targets. The report raises particular concerns around short-term targets. The companies studied are only going to cut emissions by around 23% on average by 2030, well short of the near halving over the period that climate scientists say is necessary. Companies were scored on their targets, progress in emissions reduction, transparency and reliance on offsetting. The brands criticised in the report have understandably hit back, questioning the methodology employed and arguing that researchers have a more general misunderstanding of individual corporate approaches to the route to achieving net zero emissions. Research from the Alfred Wegener Institute in Germany says that ocean plastic pollution is on track to rise for years to come, even if drastic mitigation measures are put in place. The report, commissioned by WWF, reviewed over 2,500 academic papers on plastic pollution, which show that plastic is found throughout the world's seas and oceans, already at dangerous levels in some areas, including the Mediterranean, and impacting potentially all species in the oceans and crucial habitats such as coral reefs and mangroves. Such biodiverse ecosystems are also under significant threat, of course, from climate change and rising sea temperatures. The report writers argue that efforts should focus on preventing plastic reaching the oceans rather than trying to remove plastic material already at sea, given the difficulties involved. 
The Italian Parliament has voted to enshrine environmental protection into the national constitution. The new law calls for preservation of the environment, biodiversity and ecosystems in the interest of future generations. In addition, economic initiatives should not cause environmental or health-related damage. Good news then? Probably. The Italian constitution sets out broad principles rather than day-to-day specifics, and any legal challenge under the constitution can take some time to work through the Italian courts. However, environmental groups have broadly welcomed the move. The Innovation Forum Spring Conference Series will include forums on sustainable apparel and textile supply chains, how to ensure responsible and ethical sourcing policies, and business action on climate change. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. On the 14th and 15th of June, we'll be holding this year's Future Food USA event face-to-face in Minneapolis. To find out how the conference is shaping up, I spoke with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop. Joining me now for the first time is Emily Heslop. Welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you, Ian. So, Emily, tell us about where the event's going to be held. The event's going to be held at the Graduate Minneapolis, which is right in the heart of the University of Minnesota. We're really excited to be back in person in June. The last time we were able to hold this conference in person was back in 2019 in Chicago. So very much looking forward to getting everyone back face to face in the same room talking about the future of food. We certainly hope that that's going to be possible to go ahead. It does feel like it's going to be now. There's just the way things are going and we're confident that we're going to be able to have this event back face to face, which is very exciting. Okay, Emily, what's the focus of the agenda? Are there any sessions that you're looking forward to in particular? Yes, the Future of Food US's two-day business conference is going to be assessing how companies can adapt practices to align with climate targets and identify the main areas of opportunities within the food and beverage industry. We're going to bring together more than 200 key stakeholders for practical and candid discussions on how businesses can adapt to drive regenerative food systems. And within the gender itself, we've got a variety of different challenges we're covering including climate leadership, supply chain resilience, regenerative feed systems, carbon accounting, financing sustainable innovation, and so on. In terms of sessions that I'm most looking forward to, it's really tough to choose, I guess all of them in a way, but there are two that stand out for me. The first one is our session on the first day where we're looking at the regenerative food company and what this looks like in practice and at scale. And then on our second day, the penultimate session is discussing the power of honest marketing to build trust and reconnect consumers with their food. A lot of interesting content there for sure. Who do we have confirmed to participate at this stage? We've got a number of speakers confirmed from organisations, including PepsiCo, Oatly, Sodexo, Riches, Keurig Dr Pepper, Conservation International, Dole Foods and a number of others. And we've recently had a number of bookings come through. So we're going to be joined by representatives from organisations like NatureWorks, Target, World Animal Protection, the RSPBO, Ahold Del Hayes, Meridian Institute and a number of others. Good lineup. It's a great lineup already. And of course, that's changing all the time. You get that information on the conference website, of course, as further participants and particularly panellists are confirmed. How can our listeners get involved, Emily? If anyone is interested in sponsoring the event, we have a number of different sponsorship opportunities and they can get in contact with my colleague, Anita Thompson, whose email is available on the conference website that you just mentioned. In terms of listeners who might be interested in attending the conference, you can currently register online. At the moment, you can save $400 on your ticket price if you register before our next deadline, which is Friday the 18th of February, so next Friday. 
So that's $400 discount if you're able to register by Friday the 18th of February. Well, it's going to be a fantastic event, I'm sure, in June. It'll arrive sooner than you think. But for now, Emily Hislop, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. A few days ago, I spoke with Ian Suranganda, Head of Policy and Partnerships, Sustainability and Communications at Golden Agri Resources, and Roshan Mortimer, Lead for Private Sector Engagement and Programming at the Tropical Forest Alliance. We talked about changing regulatory landscapes in the palm oil sector and other commodity supply chains, some of the unintended consequences of what's proposed, and how conversations with investors are evolving. We're going to be talking a bit about the changing regulation in commodity supply chains and particularly thinking about the move to due diligence. So Ian, turning to you first, thinking about the changing regulatory landscape for the palm oil sector, what's on your wish list for 2022? We do see a trend of increasing legislation on supply chain, you know, to regulate the agri-commodity supply chain. I think in palm oil industry actors have already done a lot, actually, to improve the sustainability performance of the supply chain. Things I would like to see in legislation, these legislation should reinforce the supply chain transformation already underway. Okay, and what I mean by this specifically is legislation should be inclusive, not exclusive. At the moment, many of the legislation that I see is that smallholders are at risk of being excluded because, for example, they cannot demonstrate compliance with the proposed regulations. What I also would like to see is legislation should aim to build trust between actors. A key change that I would like to see is a change in language from negative to positive, you know, from deforestation to forest protection, from prohibition and exclusion to transformation and inclusion. Rasheen, same question to you then, and and perhaps expanding beyond palm oil. What's on your wish list for 2022 and what are the changes that you'd like to see come through? There are many reasons to be optimistic about the direction things are going regarding regulation, whether it's EU or uh, in the UK, US and China. There's a lot of demand-side regulation moving to promote sustainable production and trade, which is very exciting, something that has been called for for a long time. Regarding things to change, speaking a bit to Ian's point, it's really it's not so much a change, but just making sure that all of this work and effort in the regulatory space does really contribute to the goal of protecting forests as well and other ecosystems, as well as genuinely promoting, as Ian said, the transformation that's happening on the ground and promoting the good practices and, and helping people who need a bit of extra support to do those practices. One goal is definitely to have a, a deforestation-free supply coming into Europe, but I hope that what we see throughout the year is that that's not the only box that gets ticked. There are a lot of conversations, obviously, about the new EU due diligence rules, which could be in place by 2023, with enforcement rolling out over the following two years. Ian, what is it you like about these proposals and where do you think they need to be improved? There's some items we like. There's some items that I think that can be improved. I think the items we like, I can name two. One is the cutoff date. They put a cutoff date of 2020. That is in consideration of the challenge of smallholders. Also, it's in line with SDG 15. Yeah, that talks about uh, conservation above ground. The other thing we like is that it creates a level playing field. Not so much everybody within Europe needs to contribute to transforming the supply chain, but more in the sense that it's a shared responsibility, that it's both upstream and downstream actors are responsible for ensuring a sustainable supply chain. Where I think we can see improvement is there needs to be more awareness and understanding of the smallholder challenge and risk mitigation of smallholders are different from risk and risk mitigation on companies. 
EU should really provide specific guidance for European companies how to tackle smolders. I think the other items I would like to see is to send the correct signals. So at the moment, the signal is if the country is high risk or the producer is high risk, then they should be excluded from the supply chain. And that is not what we want. What we want is the continuing transformation of the supply chain. And there we need actually the signal that European companies should invest in the supply chain, not to exclude them. That's a great point about exclusion and one we can come back to in a second. Rasheen, same question to you. What are you seeing about the EU regulations that you like and where do you think there can be improvements? Obviously, what I really like about the proposal is just the potential that it has to not only curb commodity-driven deforestation, but also protect forests and livelihoods. And as Ian said, it does set the bar high for similar demand-side policies from other demand markets. So that's really exciting. And congratulations to those that developed it for, for getting that through to this stage so far. And maybe just before I continue to clarify, one thing is that I'm here representing Tropical Forest Alliance, which is an alliance of many stakeholders, but which exchanges and shares views. So not necessarily everybody in that alliance shares all of the views that I would share from my behalf today. That's a group that actually meets regularly, monthly, to exchange specifically on the topic of the EU regulation and sort of a mix of private sector, civil society, industry associations. I think we're at about 35 now. So it's a great place to exchange ideas. But going back to your question, in addition to just that potential and the high bar set so far, I think the the areas that we'd like to see made more robust is yeah, linking similar actually to Ian's point, just making sure that it does achieve the multiple objectives and has a lot of support to create the enabling environment in producing regions for producers to meet the new requirements uh, to make sure that it doesn't sort of lead to this market, market segregation where you have sustainable supply going into Europe and the same practices continuing on the ground because there's no finance or incentive to do otherwise because they can just be sold to other markets. And I think, you know, there's a number of things there that we'd like to see in terms of that support that definitely we hope would go beyond traditional development aid type partnerships, but really be integrated into incentives in the trade and a bit of new thinking in that space of how to do that. As well as well, another point that I really like is this has really increased the dialogue between lots of different actors. Uh, so that's been fantastic to see more and more uh, civil society, private sector, financial sector and public sector all engaging to make this work. We hope to see more of that. And then I think within that, we'd love to see more government to government dialogue happening between the EU and producing regions again, to just really make sure that this regulation is something that's overall positive for people at both ends of the supply chain. I think you're right that there's a real need here to capture the positivity. I think there's a desire to really move things forward in a positive direction, but there obviously are some challenges ahead. In particular, as ever, the law of unintended consequences, I think, really come into play. We've touched on this already. For example, if European importing companies stop sourcing from high-risk areas, the problems there may never be tackled. How much is this a risk that you recognize? No, I think that's significant. Let's say the EU due diligence proposal, you know, there are sanctions and penalties imposed on companies who don't have a proper due diligence in place, especially for small, medium enterprise. It's much easier for them to say, look, if it's a high risk, I just don't want to source from there, right? And avoid the whole risk of sanctions and then penalties, right? And help me reduce the cost also of due diligence. 
So I think that risk is significant. I hear this also from my colleagues in other companies, that there will be a move away from what is perceived as a high-risk country that could be Indonesia or a high-risk commodity that could be palm oil. That's why palm oil is on the scope of this legislation. That would be counterproductive right, to the transformation that is now underway. It would reduce demand for the product. It would reduce prices that would hurt smolders. You know, what we fear at GAR is that it will also reduce investment in sustainability. You need the correct market signals so that producers are incentivized to invest in sustainability. If European companies now walk away because it's easier for them, then you don't see the effort and investment made in actually protecting forests. That's that's the risk we see. What are the solutions then? What do you want to see change in the legislation that would perhaps help here? The opposite, right? So we want, for instance, European buyers have a policy of inclusion. So we want them to include small, medium enterprise and smallholders and that their investment in transformation of small, medium enterprise and smallholders should be recognized under the legislation. So Rasheen, then from your perspective, what do you think are the risks around the unintended consequence of European businesses withdrawing from high risk areas, perhaps in commodities beyond palm oil? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Ian has covered a lot of them, but in addition to moving from one risk area to another, for certain commodities, companies can change recipes to shift to a true replacement commodity that may not be grown in a forested area, but if the regulation is only covering forests and not other natural ecosystems, which is one point many stakeholders are currently asking for, then there's going to be degradation of other areas, which isn't necessarily any better. And similarly, increased demand for other commodities that may not be a risk of deforestation today, that could be a risk in the future. It's not an easy job, and I don't envy those that are trying to to get this across. And really do congratulate them on the good work being done. But there's really a lot to consider, whether it's risk in a country and shifting to buy palm oil from another region or any other commodity that's in the proposal or buy it because it doesn't cover all commodities right now, um, as well as it, it's more focused on forests. So it's quite a few factors there that, that could really drive trends to be changing, uh, not necessarily for the better. And there certainly is a lot still to work through, isn't there? Let's think a little bit about the role of investors in the industry and how the conversations with investors are changing. As investors become more aware of the potential supply chain risks in commodity supply chain. So Ian, how are you at GAR finding conversations with investors changing? Definitely, Ian, the conversation with investors. So by investors, I mean not just shareholder investors, but also banks, yeah, financial institutions. Definitely the discussions have been increasing in frequency and also intensifying. They have now, you know, we see in many of these stakeholders that they're understanding and their capacity to understand has been increasing. And this is also, I think, has been in line with the trend of more civil society reports targeting financial stakeholders. We see this as increasing in frequency and intensifying. And what about, from your perspective, Rasheen, what are you seeing in terms of the role of investors in driving forward the sustainable supply chain agenda? It definitely, it's uh, sort of taking on that role more and more. So I think it's quite clear for everyone that they have a role to play and that they can have a huge influence over having sustainable production and protecting forests. And yeah, what's really great to see, and I agree with Ian, it's this part of that has been the increasing number of civil society reports and more attention given to that, the role that they should be playing. But what's been great is the response has been strong, I'd say specifically more from investors than banks. So I I hope to see more specifically from banks in the future. 
maybe that's the trend that we're going to see coming up this year. But they're definitely stepping up more. And then even on the EU policy, aware that some, for example, there's the investor policy dialogue on deforestation that was set up to encourage public-private dialogue regarding deforestation. So they, ha- I know they have been engaging uh, the EU. There's information um, online about that. So I don't think that's something they would have seen a few years ago. So. Yeah. Ian, was there what you wanted to say there? If I can expand a little bit on the banks and investors. I mentioned, you know, there's a link to their increased activity uh, due to civil society reports, but there's also innovation from the bank side. So they offer like sustainable finance products or ESG linked products. And that we welcome very much. There's basically the banks are setting out positive incentives for a company like Guard to invest in sustainability. And that is very much welcome from the financial sector. Christine, can you draw a direct link between the shift towards due diligence to suddenly investors getting more excited about all of this? Investors can only really pursue things that are where the boundary between legal and illegal is clearly defined. So these advances in the regulatory framework definitely help the financial sector get more involved because it's clearer and easier for them to have the conversation with their suppliers, uh, sorry, not with their suppliers, with uh, the people that they're potentially financing when the paperwork is clearer, the rules are clearer, there is the information is on the table. So yeah, definitely, I think it definitely helps. And Ian, do you agree with that? I agree. We want to see that alignment between the stakeholders. That would be positive. Yeah. Well, it certainly seems to be a lot of positivity at the moment. I mean, we had the COP26 meetings at uh, end of last year, a lot of progress there, a lot of businesses getting quite excited about how to really engage with their supply chains when they're thinking around a path towards net zero emissions through the first half of this century. What else should we be looking for in 2022 and coming up over the horizon machine? And I think Ian just touched on this at the end of his last comment around stakeholder alignment. That's really, I guess, what we're focused on in Tropical Forest Alliance. So I might be a bit biased, but we really see that for these problems, which are just so complex and you have so many competing, almost competing that shouldn't be objectives to achieve, providing sustainable livelihoods, protecting human rights, providing sustainable business, as well as protecting forests and other ecosystems. There's so many different outcomes to achieve that we need to have dialogue and more and more of it between sectors or structures that historically didn't speak to each other so much. And I think, you know, as I said, we are seeing this come through with this EU regulation space. Hopefully, it comes through in more and more areas. At COP, there was much more private sector presence than there has been in the past. We hope that this year we continue to see more and more of that because we do see that that is needed to make sure that solutions that are put on the table is going to help meet multiple outcomes and be long-term and not something that works well for a while but then falls apart a little bit because it doesn't actually suit all the people that it impacts. Thanks, Rasheen. Ian, what for you? What's coming up this year and coming up over the horizon? Yeah, what has sort of been brewing in the United States and in Europe is the social due diligence that's been brewing. And I think also here, there's a great opportunity along the lines of Rosin. There's an opportunity for alignment between stakeholders. There's a need for dialogue and conversation about the challenges. From a company point of view, also a great opportunity to showcase what are good practices, what has worked for us in terms of good labor practices, good human rights practices, et cetera, et cetera. It's a great opportunity also for the industry to showcase the transformation that has been undergoing. Thanks, Ian. Yes, I think it'd be really interesting to see this year. I agree entirely the social side of issues really coming forward. And I think linking with 
the climate change impacts as well because they all do link together and I think there's increasingly seeing or there is an increasing awareness of how they do all link together. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. There's obviously lots that we've covered and lots of predictions for the year. Perhaps we can come back in 12 months time to see how many of these were proved correct. But Rasheen Mortimer from TFA and Ian Subaraganda from Golden Agri Resources, thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. As featured in the News Digest last week, Nestle has recently announced a new Innovation Income Accelerator programme for cocoa production, focused in particular on tackling child labour risks. Here are Innovation Forum's Toby Webb and Peter Stanbury discussing this new programme and some of the challenges it will be tackling. The first voice is Toby's. You and I have been collaborating well for many years, 20 odd at least, on different projects. And one of the things we've been doing in recent years is writing more about supply chains, doing research, hosting webinars, seminars, etc., and raising awareness of the next generation of issues that need to be tackled and the solutions for doing so. Now, we've been doing that in a number of ways. Blog posts about issues like cocoa, reports on the next evolution of smallholder agriculture and wider agricultural engagement by companies, and conferences, of course. Now, you authored a research paper we did about a year or so ago, and we've been following these various events around commodity sustainability quite closely, I think it's fair to say. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about the new Nestle announcement and what that means and what the wider ramifications are. The headline is really that Nestle, and we worked with them on the launch of this, and Innovation Forum is they've announced an innovative plan, as they call it, to tackle child labour risks, increase farmer income and achieve full traceability in cocoa. Now, that's a very ambitious headline, but Nestle being Nestle, they have got quite a lot of detail to back it up. So for those listeners who aren't familiar with this announcement, we did get quite a lot of press, quite supportive press, actually in the FT and elsewhere. For those who aren't familiar with this, Peter, just run through what the plan is and what they're saying they're going to do. Yeah, I mean, it really is a very significant and welcome step forward. And Nestle said it's going to invest up to 1.3 billion Swiss francs between now and 2030 in their cocoa program, in their cocoa sustainability program. And specifically what they're looking to do is to move beyond just looking at the farmers they work with as cocoa farmers, but actually realise that they're farmers. And that actually the only way we start to move towards environmental sustainability, towards decent farmer incomes, is by seeing the farmer in the round. So what Nestle have announced is that each farmer family that they work with can earn up to an additional 500 Swiss francs a year, the first two years of the programme, for additional benefits, additional activities that they undertake. And there's four areas. The first is school enrolment for children in a household between six and 16. And obviously that's beneficial because children get education. But also if children are in school, then that reduces the risk that they end up being part of the child labour issue that has surrounded cocoa as a crop. Secondly, incentivizing good agricultural practices such as pruning, which have a massive increase on crop productivity. And we looked at some of the data that Nestle circulated on this and good pruning and good practice around maintaining the cocoa trees is, has a phenomenal impact on productivity. There's an incentive there. The third area is looking at agroforestry. So to really try and increase climate resilience in farming areas, planting shade trees and and activities like this. And fourthly, which certainly is something we definitely agree with from the work that the, the, the results of our research last year, is encouraging farmers to diversify their incomes. 
through growing other crops that might be cassava or whatever it is, um, or raising livestock. Livestock also have the advantage that they're very portable and a highly profitable thing to do. The plan is to encourage farmers in all those four areas, and there are payments associated with good practice in each of those for each of the farming families. So it's a very, very significant and very welcome step forward. And in some ways, I suppose, not dissimilar to approaches we see in other areas of agriculture. If you go to a small farm in Italy that's growing grapes, they'll often grow three or four other crops. And I'm sure many of these farms are getting subsidies from the common agricultural policy. In some senses, this is taking a model that's proven elsewhere and putting it into West Africa. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that's right. One of the things that came out of our research last year is that quite a lot of the coverage of the cocoa sector is quite disingenuous. You'll get quite a lot of NGO coverage that will say cocoa farmers only earn such and such a percent of a living income. They forget to add that actually that's because cocoa farmers don't just grow cocoa, they grow other things as well. But I think the difference with the Nestle thing is it's encouraging those second crops, those additional crops, to be grown in a more commercial fashion. You and I have spent a lot of time in, in various parts of the world, from Bangladesh to India to Sierra Leone to Tanzania. Many farmers will already grow an additional crop, but it will generally either be for home consumption. So they might grow legumes or whatever to diversify the household diet or for small cash income that they sell at the local market. I think where what Nestle is doing is slightly different is it's actually seeing those additional crops, those additional activities as being you know, properly a second income so that the farmers are not just having as one significant income what they do with cocoa, but they'll have one, perhaps two other incomes as well. It's taking that model that, that exists elsewhere and really turbocharging it in the context of West Africa. Well, it's great to see. And of course, the school enrolment side of things has form as well, doesn't it? Um, the Bolsa Familia scheme famously in Brazil reduced poverty by 27.7% during the first administration of Lula da Silva. And of course, you, one might argue on a national basis how affordable that is in the long term. But nevertheless, the idea of incentivizing school enrollment in is not new and it has been proven to work. So it's, it's great to see a company taking that holistic approach. There's no doubt this isn't just a sort of let's see what happens over the next year or two. This is a major investment of time, of resource. As you say, we were involved in the launch of this. We had their very senior people. We had Mark Schneider led the session, and, and it doesn't get much more senior than that. Um, and again, just to loop back on your point about school enrolment, part of the reason that children will not be in school in some of these communities is because the family needs the children to be able to make the farm work. And so actually making there be a, a cash incentive, you know, either perhaps buy in labour or do something different to actually make sure that child goes into school, I think is excellent. We also had some serious political buy-in at the event, of course. I think it was the, the leader of the Ivory Coast was there and incredibly supportive of this programme yeah. and mentioned very honestly that they know they have to invest in the future of their sector and they know issues like deforestation have to come to an end because, of course, that will end up ruining farmer livelihoods as well as other issues. So great to see this happening. Now, where does this sort of thing go next? That's what we're really interested in, isn't mm. it? You know, we came up with a framework a couple of years ago, clumsily titled Collaborative Development Governance, where we talked about the potential of examples like this to exist with government policy and to drive regional rural development, because that's really what we need to see. It's what we've seen elsewhere in the world. You look throughout history, you see in rural areas, developments happened in similar ways. We've seen people move up the value chain, processing facilities, create localized economies, support economies for farming. And that's where we've seen the development of rural towns and so on. So it's interesting to think forward about how initiatives like this and others could help contribute to better thinking about how we have sustainable rural development in regions like West Africa. Yeah, I agree. 
the fact that the hinterland of this Nestle announcement is them, they as an organization realizing that you can't just look at cocoa farmers as being cocoa farmers. You've got to see them in the round. You've got to understand the wider context in which those families and those communities operate. You mentioned that there was political buy-in to the Nestle announcement, which was very welcome. And I think begins to recognize that there needs to be a joined up approach that involves government, involves the host governments of the governments of these countries, and it involves the corporate sector. And this was very much a conclusion of our research last year, that part of the reason that initiatives around sustainability so far aren't sustainable is because they're all individual or pinpricks in, in what actually is a systemic problem. Take the issue of child labour in cocoa. Yes, if you look at cocoa as a crop, there is a much lower rate of child labour than has historically been the case. But that doesn't necessarily mean that child labour as a problem in those countries has been addressed. They just work elsewhere. Therefore, if those issues have to be properly addressed, there needs to be a more holistic approach to it. And I think this is a, a very welcome step in that direction from Nestle. But I think where does it go next? As you say, we coined this term collaborative development governance a couple of years ago, and it's slightly inelegant term, but I think it does do what it says on the tin. Where we need to get to is a, as a collective joined up approach. And in the case of cocoa in West Africa, I think it means looking beyond just what goes on at farm level. We have to start looking at questions like, what is the value addition that happens to cocoa onshore? Our understanding at the moment is that vast proportion of the processing of cocoa currently takes place out of those countries, which obviously means that a great deal of the value addition to that product happens elsewhere. So what might be done around developing some more onshore processing of cocoa? I don't know how that might work, but that's the sort of thing one needs to look at. Another issue is the question of farm size. Already, the vast majority of small-scale farmers around the world farm less than two hectares, and in parts of West Africa, it's less than a hectare. How far is that ever going to be sustainable? You can improve these situations as far as you can. But at some stage, there needs to be a shift towards a different structure of rural agricultural economics. As you say, that's what's happened in many other countries around the world. I mean, how many ultra small scale farms do we still see in Western Europe? None. Because you get large farms, you get larger economies of scale. But obviously, the key then is how do you create other opportunities for local employment so you don't end up with a migration towards the big metros? It's beginning to look at those wider issues, those wider contextual issues. And I think that's why having the political engagement with Nestle's announcement um, a couple of weeks ago was so encouraging. And as we know, Alex Asanvo is now running, who's ex-corporate sector himself, is now running a joint program for both the Ivoirian and Ghanaian governments to look at this whole piece. And I think that's really, really encouraging. Collaborative development governments may be a slightly awkward term, but I think we're beginning to see with the Nestle announcements, the first step in how one might get there. Yes, and, and for listeners interested in our previous writing on this, including on that term, have a look at my blog, sustainablesmartbusiness.com, where we've had a lot of traffic and a lot of discussion about this, where we talked about blunt instruments like the living income differential in cocoa just not really working, and then suggested this broader approach. And I think for those companies out there who are, or execs in companies who are quite scared, rightfully, by the idea of being responsible for development, I think the point both of us would like to make is that we're not asking or suggesting that companies should be responsible for the development of South Sumatra or um, Liberia or Cote d'Ivoire, but that they are facilitating an honest debate about what needs to take place to drive resilience and to drive development of institutions and incentives that can allow those living in those places to be educated and move up the value chain. And the Nestle announcement is a really good example of that because it's helping in the round 
people to get educated whilst earning an income. And so the next step for that has to be a number of other companies recognizing, I think publicly, this need and starting to collaborate on how they could work with governments to make that happen. That's the kind of research we're trying to do now through our Innovation Accelerator Network. And I think it's a much needed development because frankly, where else would we go from here, Peter, if we didn't do this? You're right that companies are and historically have been for all sorts of reasons, very, very wary of anything that has political in it. But the fact is that by engaging in programmes and projects around smallholder farmers, those issues are part of larger societal political issues. They don't exist in a bubble on their own. And really, the only way that you can start to address these issues, you know, be that environmental degradation, be that child labour, be that farmer income, the only way that you can address those systemically and durably is by addressing the underlying problems. Another phrase that we've used over the years has been political economy analysis, which is something we think really needs to be a much better underpinning of what goes on in these markets to really understand what actually is going on. Let's understand the question first before we start to try and put forward answers. Therefore, it's not that companies need to get involved in a political way and sort of lobbying or anything like that, but it's recognising that the issues that they're trying to address with programmes around smallholder farming are inevitably linked to deeper political and social issues. And it's only by engaging with those that the specific issues, the proximate issues around incomes, environmental degradation are going to be addressed. We hope with our Innovation Accelerator Network that we can provide that sort of convening power. We can be that safe space for corporate entities, government entities to actually have those conversations a little bit like Innovation Forum's conferences have done over the years, you know, provide literally a forum where issues can be discussed. But what we're trying to do with the network is really to make it granular, looking at on the ground issues that face both governments and companies. Well, yes, I think it's about assembling the evidence base, isn't it? This is a puzzle we have to put together piece by piece. We did a pretty groundbreaking report, which you authored about a year ago, December 2020, actually, we, we published it. That was sort of 80 or 90 interviews looking at the missing areas of smallholder research to drive efficiencies in the value chain, of which we found many. And you can find all of those by looking at the Innovation Forum website and looking for Innovation Accelerator, download Peter's report. Truly a great piece of work. Well done on that. But what that made us realize is that there are a number of areas to be explored and that what we need to do if we want to start joining things up a bit and helping companies, NGOs, governments and others get to a place where they can discuss how we build a framework to take this sort of thing forward. This sort of thing, I mean, the next generation of announcements such as that made by Nestle recently, we need to establish an evidence base. And that's got to be done on a regional basis, looking at different crops around the world to show what they have in common. And that's where Innovation Forum has always added a bit of value in helping those in one industry see the benefits and learnings from another. So at the moment, we've got a couple of projects underway to try and build on this work with Nestle. So Peter, just talk briefly about work we're doing with Golden Agri and with Cotton Connect and how we think that might feed into growing this kind of evidence base for taking rural development discussions further. Yes, we're working on two pilots at the moment with Cotton Connect and with Golden Agri. Cotton Connect works with 55,000 farmers in Gujarat in India, and we're looking at that onward supply chain. One of the issues that came out of our report last year is that there's a lot of focus gets given to farmers and farming communities, but what about everyone else? What about the onward processes? What about the people who are acting as the transport providers? So that's what we're doing with GAR in Indonesia. We're looking at the question of additional markets 
obviously Nestle, with their announcement, are encouraging the farmers to look at additional crops. And that's something also that GAR has been doing uh, with its oil palm farmers in Indonesia. And they've actually got to the stage where some farmers are growing significant amounts of additional crops, but they're not finding a market for those crops. So we're working to understand how that might be improved. But as you say, Toby, it's about getting data and insight on the ground and also realising that there is the potential for huge overlap, as you say, economies of scale. If you take even just government and donor programs, there are 438 agriculturally focused donor programs in India. So the potential for overlap between what Cotton Connect are doing and some of them is, is probably quite significant. And it's finding those overlaps. It's being able to look for those economies of scale. It's being able to say, as we did with the report last year, there are massive learnings across value chains, but actually realizing that and, and implementing that at a geographically specific level. So next steps for us in this are um, we're going to be doing more think pieces, I suppose, about how to take this forward. You can find many of them on sustainablesmartbusiness.com. Some of them will also be appearing on Innovation Forum. We're going to be doing more podcasts like this, webinars to convene execs and NGOs and government folks and others to discuss this sort of thing and trying to move this research forward with more members of our informal network who want to share and learn from each other because these commodities often have more in common than they have not in common. So join us to do that. You can contact Peter or I in the usual ways, first name dot last name at innovationforum.co.uk. And we really hope you can join us to get involved on this journey. If not, well, keep listening because there's lots to be discussed and we should be doing so in the coming month. Peter, thanks for your time today. Let's reconvene in a month or so and see where we've got to. Marvellous. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest insights and podcasts. Do look out for a new column from award-winning business and climate journalist Mike Scott, who will be reporting monthly on corporate innovation on the road to net zero. Don't forget also to take advantage of the $400 discount available this week for the June Future of Food USA conference. Everything you need to know about this and all of the Innovation Forum Spring Event series is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.